The content discussed in the Left Behind series and therefore this podcast includes emotional trauma, human suffering, extreme violence, gore, as well as hurtful caricatures and stereotypes of marginalized groups, and is in no way reflective of the host's personal views or beliefs. But we beeped out the cuss words in case you want to listen in front of your mom. Left Behind is a multimedia franchise that started with a series of 16 best-selling religious novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang. Oh my God! The future has come to pass. Hey everybody, welcome to a very special bonus episode of I Survived the Rapture. We're that podcast that slogs our way through the Left Behind novels so you don't have to, but today we're going to do something a little different. I'm your lapsed evangelical Shane Bazell. And I'm your ecumenical fanboy Gavin Russell. We thought we were going to do this at some point. I can't really think of a better time for us to take a break from the novels themselves and give a little credit to the fact that Left Behind in its prime went to the movies. With a full-blown trilogy. Oh, boy. A trilogy which you have so graciously provided me a DVD box set of. So we're going to make our way through these movies. We will sprinkle these through the latter half of the novel series as some bonus episodes. But we're going to kick it off right now with the inaugural release of Left Behind the movie. Right off the bat on the, the case, we're in for an interesting uh, journey because uh, they got two guys to give a quote. They got CNN and Ted Bayer, a very popular Christian movie guide and critic. And CNN said, compelling, engaging. So they pretty much got CNN to say, it's a movie. Um, <laughs> and then Ted Bayer says, bravo, the best movie in the apocalyptic genre, which uh, I'm pretty sure Ted Bayer is in like Peter and Paul Lalonde's like pocket. Peter and Paul Lalonde are the producers of Left Behind, the movie, which was directed by Vic Saren and uh, was made by Cloud 10 Pictures. Cloud 10 Pictures is like one of the biggest uh, Christian movie studios out there. Um, they, or at least they were. Yeah, they were. Oh, is there one bigger than them now? Oh, Pure Flix has them beat. Oh, okay. By far. Wow. The one that Kevin Sorbo is uh, is tight with, the God's Not Dead people. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. They're, they're way, way bigger now. Let's talk a little bit about this movie. Do you remember when this movie came out? I do not. Uh, I don't think Left Behind was quite on my radar. And if it was, I'd only known about the book's existence and not like, I'd, I, I probably didn't know that there's like this massive industry around them yet. So this movie had a limited theatrical release. It was primarily consumed direct to video. And I mean that it was on VHS. And you could see this not only in your local Christian bookstore, but they had plenty of standees in Walmart and in Barnes and Noble and in any place you could get the novels. Typically, they were packaging the movie as a box set along with it. Mm -hmm. Left Behind, the movie. It is a 2000 Canadian-American religious thriller film directed by Vic Saren and starring Kirk Cameron. 
It was based on the best-selling 1995 Christian eschatological end times novel of the same name written by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins, adapted for the screen by Alan B. McElroy. The film was released first direct-to-video followed by a limited theatrical release. With this movie, what we're getting is a pretty condensed adaptation, I would say, of the first movie. Yeah, it's only 90 minutes. I mean, minutes. the first book. Yeah, it's only 90 minutes long. But I guess we should sort of just kick it off by saying, what you think? Okay, so I'll put it like this. The <laughs> night before, we watched Willy's Wonderland, which is like a B-movie action flick. Would you say it's a B-movie? It's absolutely a B-movie. Yeah, it's, it's a, a B-movie on purpose. It's a B-movie based on Five Nights at Freddy's with Nicolas Cage in it. I had Nicolas a, Cage, another Left Behind connection. Yep, I had about as much fun with Willy's Wonderland than I did with Left Behind the movie. Does that make either of them particularly good movies? No. <laughs> But I had fun, but at the same time, I don't think I would have had as much fun with it if I already hadn't been several thousand pages invested in the Left Behind series. You want to know another funny connection between yeah. Left Behind and Willy's Wonderland? Yeah, go for it. Willy's Wonderland was produced by a company called Screen Media Films. Okay. Screen Media Films is owned by parent company Chicken Soup for the Soul Entertainment. Dear God, <laughs> this web just gets more and more. So we have another religious, or we might call them inspirational media conglomerate that owned and produced the movie we watched before this. <laughs> My God. <laughs> it's all connected, Shane. I know. So you had a decent time. Yeah, I had a decent time. But was it a good movie? Absolutely not. <laughs> there are some things that I can say about it that are positive, and I may hold these until a little bit later. But you had some notes. Honestly, I am woefully unprepared for this particular episode because I got into watching the movie. I made a couple of notes and then almost put my phone down for most of it. Mm -hmm. I think that's a mark in the movie's favor, if I'm being really honest, because I felt like, wow, I'm kind of trying to follow where this goes. I'm not necessarily getting bored. I'm doing okay. And I didn't want to stop and write notes throughout most of it, so I kind of enjoyed it. Yeah, and like, well, I'll give this movie another credit before we just start dogging on it for like the rest of this hour. For the budget they had, this wasn't the worst film that could have been made. I'm like, some other big movies that year that were like around the $100 million range, I think we started talking about, is like, what were some of the other big movies that year? Like, Gladiator. Gladiator. Um, Mission Impossible Mission 2. Mission Impossible 2. And then also, like, for another B movie, Dungeons and Dragons had a, a, a budget of $45 million. So their measly $4 million that they had to make Left Behind, th they made something? I think it made $4,250,000. Okay, so they at least broke even. Um, Probably not. Oh. Because remember, the reported budget doesn't always include marketing and distribution. Ah, gotcha. And they did market and distribute pretty heavily in the evangelical market. Yes. So, like I said, planting these in pretty much every Walmart in the South, putting these in every Christian store, probably marketing directly to church bookstores, getting churches to go caravan to see this movie in theaters, buying out theaters, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So I would pretty confidently say if they made money, it was not much, and they may have lost some. Mm-hmm. Now, that did not dissuade them from making two more of them. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh. 
Don't remind me, Shane. I know. So we do have at least two more in this particular series to move forward into. There is a Tribulation Force movie, and then there's a third movie called World at War, which is a loose Nikolai adaptation. I think the plot really diverges at that point. Yeah, because we're already going a little bit off the rails with this first one, but for the most part, it... It sticks to, like, the main structure. We get a few deviances. One, the beginning of the movie, I li- I actually kind of liked, but uh, we'll get into that. And that's not to say that you can't take a low-budget movie and have it do extremely well. I think the one that comes to mind for me is Paranormal Activity. Okay. It had about a $15,000 budget and then made something in the neighborhood of $100 million. Oh, my God. <laughs> But that's kind of a horror movie thing, right? Like, they do that. They don't have to have the big special effects, especially Paranormal Activity. They hired, you know, professional actors, but not huge names. They shot on home video cameras. Special effects were very limited. It's kind of similar with Blair Witch, too. Mm -hmm. Like, something goes viral, found found footage-style thing. Oh, man, imagine a found footage, like, Rapture movie. That would be great. I would love to see that. But that's not what we got. We got Kirk Cameron trying his best to be Buck Williams' action star in a sort of vehicle for Kirk Cameron. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to say failing, trying and failing at most things. Um, how much do you know about Kirk Cameron? I know he was on Growing Pains. I know he'll only kiss his wife on set. <laughs> I know, like, I've read, like, a few articles about him. But other, other than, like, stuff relevant to this podcast, I don't know much about the guy. So, Kirk Thomas Cameron, born October 12th, 1970, is an American actor most known for his role as Mike Seaver on the ABC sitcom Growing Pains from 1985 to 1992 a role for which he was nominated for two Golden Globe Awards. Oh. Oh, yeah. Okay. He was a household name for a while. I mean, everybody knew Mike Seaver. Growing Pains was a big show. He was kind of a heartthrob. Like, you would see him in, like, Tiger Beat and stuff like that. Like, he was someone that was trying to be promoted, but then as an evangelical Christian, I think in a lot of cases he would not play ball with what Hollywood wanted him to do. And I think he sees that as a point of pride Mm -hmm. because he's pretty much fully transitioned from being mainstream actor to sometimes acting in his own produced Christian movies, also being a traveling like evangelical minister. Yeah. He's done movies like uh, Fireproof. Yep. Which was a story of a firefighter whose marriage is on the rocks, I think because of a pornography addiction, if I'm not mistaken. There's a really interesting scene in that movie where he like takes his computer outside in the driveway and smashes it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's really funny. And Fireproof was another one of those movies, much like Left Behind and some of Kirk Cameron's other movies, that is sold to churches to be played and then packaged with like study and devotional and teaching material. Gotcha. So you show the movie and then you bring the couples in so that they can study the like godly form of marriage material that they provide with it. Tim LaHaye's like, I I got these books here. I know, I know. (laughs) He did another one called Kirk Cameron Saves Christmas, I think, which was like his War on Christmas movie. (laughs) Oh my God. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And he was very close to another guy and there is a viral video I had to look up the guy's name because I had forgotten. Cameron partners with another evangelist named Ray Comfort. Okay. They founded a ministry called The Way of the Master. Primarily what Way of the Master is, is it is a type of ministry focused around Christian apologetics. Okay. 
How familiar are you with the discipline of apologia? Okay, so I know like C.S. Lewis is in there somewhere. Which, Definitely. Yeah, C.S. Lewis. Other than C.S. Lewis, I don't know many of the ins and outs of it, but. Okay, on. so for those of you who may not be aware, the discipline of apologetics is essentially being a debate lord okay, for Christianity. Yeah, 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 yeah. okay. <laughs> um, you might call it a philosophical discipline. Some people call it an academic discipline. Basically of studying the Bible and coming up with arguments for why it is true, why God exists, why Christianity is the way and the truth, and why people who would not be believers should be believers. And also on the other side of the coin, shutting down arguments against a particular form of Christianity. Ah, uh, okay. Now, apologetics exists across denominations. Any form of philosophy focused on argument in favor of Christianity as opposed to a lack of faith or a different faith would probably fall under the category of apologetics. Mm -hmm. You can see apologists that are focused on young earth creationism. You can see ones that are focused on like that Noah's Ark was a thing. Um, but you can also see ones like C.S. Lewis who are much more like zoomed out. Yeah. And just arguing about the existence of God or the divinity of Christ or something like that. So it runs a whole spectrum. Yes. The way of the master, and we may have to find this and put it on the Facebook because it's a pretty infamous viral video, and it's Ray Comfort and Kurt Cameron holding up a banana and talking about bananas are proof of God because it is perfectly made to fit within a human hand, and it is prepackaged food that grows on a tree that grows out of the ground naturally. And that it would only exist if God exists and personally made this for us. Do you see anything wrong with that line of thinking? You could make that, all right, let's connect any any conceivable object. Like, oh, the tree, tree branch outside, perfect for climbing. Guess God. This apple, you can, you can put it in your palm, and uh, if you stabilize your hand, it won't fall out. See, you could do it with anything, so like... I agree with those points, but I'm gonna zoom in a little closer. Okay. Do you know what a wild banana looks like. Bananas before they were specifically bred by humans. Yeah, I know they're they're much different. It's not perfect for uh, for human consumption. There's like seeds all in there. It's not a perfect creation. There's a lot of things like corn and carrots and eggplant that we have bred specifically over the years to be more palatable to what we need. Mm -hmm. People did that. Yeah. It's a particularly funny segment from their apologetics clip. One of the things that I found, because there was a time where I actually wanted to go to school for apologetics. I wanted to go to ministry school and I wanted to focus on apologetics because surprise, surprise, I thought I might be able to have a career being a debate lord. The dream. <laughs> <laughs> Little did I know you actually can have a career being a debate lord. You just have to make a deal with the literal devil. <laughs> and by that, I mean the Koch brothers. Yeah brother. Sorry. But that's another thing that Kurt Cameron is fairly infamous for. He actually did come back and do a little acting in an episode of Fuller House, I think, on Netflix. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Nice. I don't know if he was playing Mike Seaver or if he was playing someone who was supposed to be reminiscent of Mike Seaver, but yeah, he was on like one episode of Fuller House. Huh. Real weird. But Kurt Cameron is kind of our star. And I think that that was the idea when they got him for this movie. It was like, oh, man, we got Hollywood actor Golden Globe nominee Kurt Cameron. And so they made this movie. Bless them. I really think they overshot. Yeah. When you watch this movie, it looks like an asylum picture. Uh, I, can, I can see that. The CG is 
awful. There are a few competent moments of cinematography, but the dialogue is extremely wooden. The performances are very bad. Yeah. For the most part. There are a couple of standouts on the good side. There are a couple of standouts on the bad side. What about this movie met your expectations or did you like as a form of adaptation and what didn't you like? Okay, so first off the bat, the way it starts was pretty all right. How they don't immediately start with the rapture. They actually do a little bit before. They show Rayford's home life and stuff before the rapture happens. Yeah, we get to meet Irene yeah. and Raimi. You get to, which, which, by the way, Raimi is playing Donkey Kong uh, in, <laughs> in, uh, in one of his first, his, his only scene. We, we did a kind of like we paused because he pulls out a Game Boy with a yellow cartridge. There's only two things that could be Pokemon Yellow or uh, which Donkey Kong game is it? Donkey Kong Land. Yeah, Donkey Kong Land. So that met expectations. Carpathia, for the most part, wasn't like he was one of the better actors. Oh, we're of the gonna films. get to my boy. Okay, that was good. I liked. Oh yeah, the uh, the assassination scene, while not the best, could have been better. Was still kind of cool. I thought Stonegol was pretty well acted. Like, all are the- you referring to the assassination scene? At the end? Yes. The execution? Yeah, the execution. Okay. okay. Yeah, I thought that was decent. It could have been better. Like, there were some corny moments in that, but compared to, like, all of the rest of the film, the first third's pretty decent. Second third, eh. Third third has some redeeming moments in it, but ultimately falls on its face, too. Okay. Well, let's talk about kind of some of the things that they changed and whether we like them or not. Okay, yeah. So, one of the first changes that you notice, you kind of hinted at this a little bit. They begin with Buck in a wheat field in Jerusalem with Hyam. They don't do that as a flashback. It is the opening of the movie. Yes, and here Hyam is uh, officially spearheading what he is calling the Eden Project. Shut the f*** up. Okay, that's another thing. <laughs> I know it's corny, and like you said, if it was in like a Kojima game, you would have like been all up in it. But you know what? That's I'm gonna give it to that one. Eden Project, when you're interfacing with biblical lore, that's cool. You make Garden of Edens everywhere. Uh, you know what? You can have it. Yeah. I'm I'm not here for it. When they said that, I just went boo. <laughs> yeah, they refer to the formula as Eden or the Eden Project. Mm-hmm. That's one change. The second change is Buck's a TV journalist. Yes. He is not a print journalist. He is part of GNN, which is 100% just the CNN logo with a G in it. He is like basically Anderson Cooper. Yeah. Because we have the joke later, Anderson Cooper, why are you in my house? <laughs> um, Buck actually somehow gets more featured, I feel like, in this movie. Mm-hmm than he does even in the book. Yeah, he Rayford takes a back seat, and who, by the way, much more of an asshole in this film. Oh, God, Rayford is absolutely unlikable. Yeah. Like, I think we got to him being unlikable later in the novel series, but I he is, from the start, unlikable because of one of the other changes. He is already having the affair with Hattie. Yeah, they are making out on this plane right before the rapture occurs. So it kind of like shifts it from like Rayford. How's it been? Rayford wants to touch a woman that he's never. T- what? Rayford Steele's mind was on a woman he had never touched. Yeah, that goes out the window because he's. Uh, oh, they're touching. Yeah, they're touching. Fun fact. Hattie Durham played by an actress named Chelsea Noble, who is married to Kurt Cameron. Yes, actually, uh, I watched a little bit of the special features today before we went on mic. She would actually been reading Left Behind in bed next to Kurt for like a bit. 
and uh, eventually she's just like, man, I want to be this Hattie Durham character in here. A few days later, Kurt got a call from his agent being like, hey, buddy, we want you on this Left Behind project. And his wife's like, you know, get me in this movie. <laughs> well, he got her in there. Mm -hmm. I will say she doesn't do half bad. Yeah, she's, she's one of the better performances. She's fine. Yeah. Like completely believable, totally fine, charming. Good on screen, portrays the character well. I almost think gives a little bit more credibility to the character than even the books do. But I think that's also partially the script. Here's another change. Hattie is not just a ditzy, useless former cheerleader who happened to end up as a flight attendant. She is a flight attendant who is working to improve herself and improve her career. Mm -hmm. Rayford and Hattie are already familiar with Buck as a frequent flyer. Yes. They already know him. They have interacted with him several times. Buck has already gotten Hattie in with the UN people prior to the rapture. Yeah, one of the uh, one of the first scenes is like Hattie being like, Ray, are we going to like make this like more official or not? Because, like, I got this job uh, at the UN lined up, and you got to give me, like, a reason to stay. Which I think is a good thing. Yeah. There are a lot of script changes in this movie that I would almost call, like, MCU changes. Not that the MCU is, like, high art cinema. Like, they're good movies, and I love them. What I think that they do very well is they take a lot of very convoluted, complex lore, and they are able to make just small snips here and there that accelerate the storytelling. Like Buck and Hyam already having a rapport. Hyam is already a UN delegate in addition to being a scientist. Just sort of accelerating the plot and the relationships of the characters a little bit. Now, another change that I thought was really interesting, during the Russian attack on Israel, Buck goes out and makes a name for himself by filming the fire in the sky. Yeah. Wreckage is crashing all around him. It's an interesting way to start it. Very bad StarCraft command and conquer CGI aside. <laughs> it's awful. But while he's out in the desert and this is all going down, an old man in what looks like Bible robes walks up to him and says something. It's kind of a forgettable line, like they will make a pact for seven years or something like that. Something prophetic sounding. Yeah. Buck gets it on tape, watches it later. It's not in English, it's in Hebrew. So they are foreshadowing the witnesses. Yeah, well, that was a cool little uh, little drop right there. And that's the only time we get to see the witnesses in this movie, but for like a, a cameo, it was cool. But that's actually one of my problems ah, with the movie. Because they don't show them more. Not that. It's that they drop stuff in this movie that makes it completely unintelligible if you have not read the books. You started talking during the, the like, when we started watching it, and uh, I asked you a question. I was just like, if you hadn't been this invested in the Left Behind, would you understand what was going on? And initially, you're like, I think so. Then we started getting into, like, the latter half, and you're like, nah, this is, uh, this is unintelligible. Alex was also in the room with us. And she was watching it and she's just like, I don't understand what's going on. And like, you guys have talked about this at me for like hours. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I think that it does hold up for about, like you said, the first third. It's easy to follow. You're intercutting between basically Ray, Buck, Chloe, and then some Nikolai. Yeah. And I would say the, the exact plot point, it starts going downhill. Is, is about the time the rapture happens, which is not where you want your Left Behind movie to start tanking. Yeah, you said that the night we watched it, mm -hmm. which I think was like two nights ago now. Yeah. And you're right. Even though I think the rapture is handled better in this movie, 
than it is handled in the book. They hit some of the beats. You have the old lady asking Buck to check the bathroom. He checks the bathroom. You have people starting to freak out. Their kids are disappearing. This kind of kicks off a panic inside the plane. But then you have Chelsea Noble being a pretty competent actress as Hattie, really selling the scene. Kirk Cameron and the actor that plays Ray. Brad Johnson. Brad Johnson, okay, who does look like Patrick Warburton. I said that in a previous he episode. Does. He looks like Patrick Warburton. Unfortunately, does not sound like Patrick Warburton. That would make the movie infinitely better. I'd give it two more stars. Mm -hmm. You have these actors who are pretty competently handling the material that they're given. The script makes the change from whatever weird plan that Ray came up with in the original book, something about like declarative forms for like cargo and customs and stuff and making everyone fill them out. He just goes, uh, no, I'm going to the cockpit and dropping the oxygen masks. That'll force people to get in their seats. Yeah. Cause like a guy tries to jump out of the plane in the movie, right? Yeah. And they're like, no, no dude, like just calm down. And Buck and Ray have to tackle him and do an action hero thing because this dude's freaking out and he's like, I'm not going to be next. It's more compelling. I'm really enjoying this. I liked the rapture stuff. Yeah. I love the aftermath where Buck is walking through O'Hare and seeing the people at the phone banks and seeing people watching TV. I feel like Nikolai's introduction, they call him Father Teresa. When he's on TV, he's doing like a World Health Organization or like a United Way or a UNICEF kind of commercial. Mm -hmm. And he's great. Then they start kind of putting the conspiracy angle into it. Like, they introduce Stonegold. They introduce Catherine, kind of. The guy who's supposed to be Catherine, one, isn't English, even though they both live in London, him and Stonegold, and two, doesn't have that many lines. Mm -hmm. So who Todd Catherine is and why he matters doesn't really get any more play than it does in the book, which gotcha. he's just another guy. Um, you don't get the weird Cockney thing. <laughs> Alan Tompkins, also not English. Dirk Burton, also not English. We're going to get to Dirk in a minute. Oh, man. The Dirk... I would have liked it if they had really committed to how crazy he was. Yeah. Instead of just calling Buck up and being like a source who's a little crazy, he is full on like Michael Richards Kramer, like shaking crazy, like meeting Buck in abandoned buildings and constantly chain smoking kind of crazy. Think, Buck, think. Oh, yeah. He, he does, does say he that. He does say that. <laughs> oh, man. I didn't even catch that. I'm glad you remembered that. And uh, yeah, but he's really crazy and he's almost doing like an Alex Jones thing. And they focus in really hard on the fact that what Stonegal and Cawthorn are planning is to control the world's food supply. Yeah, they have. That becomes the crux of the conspiracy plot. Because Stonegal has this like very cultural Darwinist like manifesto called like rational selection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, it's something like, like he wrote in college and he's like, it's like a Georgia Guidestones thing. Yeah, and like Dirk like in the parking garage is like just hands him that and like, read this, it'll, it'll, show, it'll show you everything, man. And it says, like, lorem ipsum dorum. <laughs> right? <laughs> on, the, on the paper. <laughs> and then he hands him, like, a little mini disc out of his watch. And then we get to meet Buck's weird uh, CSI crew. Mm -hmm. It's, like, the two girls that live in the apartment. Yeah. The weird, like, early 2000s apartment with, like, inflatable chairs and like warehouse apartment with like the big metal sliding door. It's like they described to someone what the NCIS set looked like and they're like, all right, but make this a house. Okay, cool. That's who I was thinking of. I didn't mean CSI. I meant 
NCIS. I never watched any of those shows. Yeah, I, they were. Uh, I didn't have cable for like a little bit growing up, so NCIS was like my jam. When now that you're talking about it, I totally see it. Yeah, because this girl, instead of being goth, she's like a weird hippie chick, and mm-hmm. she's got Hannah tattoos everywhere. Because we saw that at the beginning, like the girl in the editing bay, who's going to become like his research assistant, mm-hmm. has a weird Hannah tattoo on her forehead. Yeah, like she looks like she just came back from like Coachella or Burning Man or something. Yeah, we were like, is that like a Mark of the Beast thing? Are they doing that this early? Why does she have? Have this mark on her forehead because like it wasn't real- any kind of symbol that I recognized and I think it's just like now it's just there yeah because like for a second because I, I swear she had some kind of like Hindu iconography on her shirt at one point so I'm like are they like wanting to show that like other religious people are still alive during it so maybe that's what they were trying to do I guess and I mean but I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention it this is a very white girl yeah <laughs> There's tons of scenes of cutting back to Buck in, like, their apartment while they're doing research and, like, pulling up full 3D models of the Temple Mount and talking about that. So the conspiracy itself for Nikolai to take over the UN remains largely intact. Yes. I also think that, and it's as good a time as any to get into Nikolai, I feel like he was okay. He was pretty good. He wasn't who I would have personally cast for Nikolai, but he plays the part well. He's believable as just a regular politician for most of the movie until like the heel turn at the very end when he when he just starts blasting yeah his name's uh gordon curie or Mm -hmm. gordon curry i think i made the point to you during this that robert redford was supposed to be what they modeled nikolai off of they actually say in the book he looks like a young robert redford you couldn't afford kmart robert redford i don't know what actor is kmart robert redford but instead you got kmart steve mcqueen yeah because he does doesn't he look like steve mcqueen he does but also to make up for uh carpathia not being evil like or seeming evil in the early scenes stonagall is the most hand-wringing like comical villain for a little bit ever Oh, yeah. And he's very much like a greater good Ozymandias type of villain. I don't think he sells it. Yeah. Um, He's not a charismatic villain. He's not interesting. He is just there to move the plot forward. To Gordon's credit, he does play Nikolai very doe-eyed and innocent and just wanting to help the world, just wanting to make it a better place. I think he does a good job with the accent. Um, I think the accent is... Very present without being obtrusive. And uh, I've told you about something that lies in our future with the audiobooks where that is definitely not the case. Oh, no. In my head, this is what Nikolai looks and sounds like. Like, he's a good-looking dude. He's well put together. He knows what he's about. And he genuinely wants to help people, or at least that's how he is portrayed for a good portion of the movie. We really don't get that heel turn at all. There is no warning that Nikolai is the Antichrist. There is no foreshadowing that he is the Antichrist. There's no real moment where he's talking to one character and they're in the same room and then that character leaves and then we get a slow pull in on Nikolai's face while scary music plays and he starts to grin. Like, there's nothing like that. Stonegal is 100% portrayed as the head of the snake and the villain for the whole movie. And then I really think that they missed the mark on the turn and the reveal. Yeah, they. it wasn't as good as I want it to be, but I was having a bit more fun with that than you were, and we'll get to that when we get to it. Um, but also another change that happens is Chloe gets a little bit more screen time too and a little bit more action in her plot. Like when she's on the ground when the rapture occurs, and, like, there's chaos everywhere because, like, car crashes are happening. She gets out, tries to, like, 
help some people and someone steals her car. We get to see the stuff that happened to Chloe instead of just hearing about it via Rayford like yeah. we do in the book. I think the actress who played Chloe did a good enough job. Yep. She put in her hours. She, you know, she put in a performance. Her name is Janaya Stevens. Okay. Um, I think that they did Chloe better in this, specifically because there is tension between her and Rayford about how Ray is treating her mother. Yes. And part of Ray's character development and hers is them having to kind of reconcile and come together as the only members of their family left. I feel like that's more interesting than what we get in the books. Yeah, I, I agree. And then we get to another diversion where Buck doesn't have anywhere else to go. So he just shacks up with Rayford. Like Ray goes into brood and Buck's just on the porch like, well, I'm here now. It would get kind of a weird reference callback to the sleeping on the porch from Tribulation Force. Yeah. But then he lets himself in and sleeps on their couch and because it's a juxtaposition of the sad boy Ray scene with Buck getting his way to Ken Ritz. Yeah. Ray is the one who introduces him to Ken by way of going home first and having his scene. So instead of getting the iconic sad boy Ray reads the Bible scene, which we do get... But with the knowledge the entire time that while he's having this emotional breakdown, Kirk Cameron is trying to sleep on the couch in his living room. <laughs> and man, the sad boy Ray scene is only punctuated by one of the moments where I could not stop cackling. What, what was it? Rayford reads the Bible, mm -hmm. and it was a Bible that I used to have when I was a kid. It's that kind of burgundy cover, you know, words of Christ in red, just says Holy Bible on the front. He reads it. He looks at himself in the mirror and very dramatically and in a little bit of slow motion throws the Bible at the mirror and shatters it <laughs> in his anguish. Right? Oh, it's so good. I loved that, it. That was pretty good. I lost it there. Also, uh, something that they kept doing in this movie was the abandoned do dog tearjerker oh moments. Oh, my God, dude. There were so many dogs that were just abandoned that they would, like, have a close-up on for a second of, look at this sad dog. Do you want to do this to your pets? When I saw that, though, the fact that no one had, like, taken in those dogs on that street, I was like, yeah, leave them all behind. No one has cared for these boys. Nah, the burn it all down. <laughs> Robo scorpions, horsemen, whole deal. Just let them suffer. They are not taking care of these dogs. They deserve to be left behind. And then we get to one of our favorite mo moments in this film where Chloe finally gets back to the house to meet with Rayford. There's just, okay, so like as you were describing, imagine if you came home after like a really, really like traumatic event in the world. Like stuff is going down. You don't know what's occurring. The, the news is freaking out. And on your couch is Anderson Cooper. Yeah, I'm, like a 9-11 part two just happened and Anderson Cooper is on your couch. <laughs> to which I, I, we were watching it and I just said, Anderson Cooper, what are you doing in my house? <laughs> Man, like that, that would be a trip. Like just to see like any like media figure just, just chilling. Do you think it worked out better as a meet cute for Chloe and Buck than what we got in the original book? I think so. And especially if you're, if you're wanting to see it through the lens of, it was divine intervention that brought them together. Just having like a world famous reporter on your couch that just, yeah, I, I, I like bad. it. Yeah, it ain't bad. Yeah. They kind of trauma bond a little bit right there, which mm -hmm. like makes sense considering, you know, the rest of the story and everything. So it's not bad, you know, it's workable. Again, it's another change that's sort of condensing the narrative. You don't have the weird drawn out fancy dress dinner that we always thought was weird, mm -hmm. you know? There's a member of the Trib Force we haven't talked about, though. Okay. And unfortunately, we're going to have to talk about him. No disrespect to the actor, 
I just don't think he was given a lot to work with. I don't think he was directed terribly well. Let's talk about Bruce. Okay, before we critique him, I'll give him a few points. Uh, because today on the special features, they actually played back the scene where he's in the church. And he's giving that monologue to God that, oh, I, all of them, all of the people at my congregation, they believe the things that I was preaching to them, and they're gone. That wasn't the worst monologue, but there's some bits of his uh, performance that were a bit stale. Uh, do you mean when he fell to his knees and went, ah, God? Yeah, yeah, that was. And again, I don't think it was his fault. Yeah. Because we've seen this guy in other movies. Have we? Probably most notably, he's the hacker from Die Hard. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he's Theo the Hacker. He's okay. part of Hans Gruber's crew. His name's Clarence Gilliard Jr. And see, as soon as I said that, you remembered him. He was in Top Gun. 196 episodes of Walker, Texas Ranger, this guy. So yeah. next to Kirk Cameron, he's probably one of the most well-known actors in the movie. Yeah. So I don't think it is him that's the problem. I think Bruce is given next to nothing to do except for dump exposition. I think they tried to make this weird monologue that Bruce had an emotional core of the movie, but we barely knew who Bruce was at that point. He does show up at their house because they're getting ready for a birthday party, I think, for Raimi. Mm -hmm. And Bruce comes and brings his kid over. There is like a moment of recognition between like Ray and Bruce. So like they know each other already. They're not as estranged or like, hey, I've seen you around church. So another one of those things kind of accelerating those character dynamics. So we see Bruce, we know he's a pastor. And then his monologue is supposed to convey that, and it just doesn't work. And then pretty much for the rest of the movie, he's just there to provide exposition, which isn't all that different from Bruce, the character in the novel. Right, and like I said before, even though that monologue scene didn't work out, that's probably his strongest part of his performance in this film. Like, you can tell there's a little bit of acting talent behind it, but he just needed a little bit more direction there. I honestly think that, like, the stuff when he does start delivering exposition is fine. Yeah. I think he is actually pretty strong at that. I think he can deliver that stuff in a way that feels natural. It's just, man, like, his interactions with Ray and everybody praying and everything like that. Because we get to a moment, and I think that it is... Is it before Buck has his bathroom conversion or is it during that? Where, where everybody's kneeling. It's and during. It's during. Okay. So they do a thing that was so common in TV, especially from that era. Like that era and like moving into the more early 2000s, you would have an emotional beat in like the penultimate episode or the final episode of a season and it would cut into some kind of pop song. Yeah. And it would be a wordless montage to a pop song of what's going on with all the different characters it's the scene from shrek when they're playing rufus wainwright yeah and you know it's cutting to everybody it's it's that right and it cuts to some song you know just a generic kind of worship song called believer by a group called jake <laughs> just jake not to be confused with less than. Um, I don't know any of their other music, and considering all of the CCM that I was exposed to as a child, it is surprising that I don't, because this soundtrack was full of pretty heavy hitters for the time, like at least in contemporary Christian music. You had your Michael W. Smith, you had Third Day, you had Plus One, Avalon, Rebecca St. James. Like, you had a lot of good acts on there. But, yep, they do this kind of altar call, a buck falls to his knees in the bathroom, still not knowing who the Antichrist is, still not knowing anything about Nikolai. And in fact, he's walking into this meeting with Nikolai feeling like Nikolai's 
got us back. Yeah. Um, which I think is another positive change. Don't play your hand until the moment. But you have, like, Bruce there, and, like, Chloe comes down the aisle of the church, and she kneels next to her dad, and they both are looking up at the cross, and they're praying. Oh, the cross that Bruce threw something at? A, I think a tennis he, ball. Oh, threw a tennis ball, because he's bouncing a tennis ball like Steve McQueen in Great Escape, bouncing a tennis ball while sitting in the lectern. Yeah. You know, because kind of his knees to his chest, which, like, good physical acting, and then just the script just lets him down. Yeah. But, yeah, he one-shots the cross off the altar in the back, which is pretty impressive. Yep. And then we get the finale. Buck goes into the meeting. It's very much like the Captain America, or yeah, um, I almost said Captain America and the Winter Soldier. I guess that's the title now. But the Falcon and Winter Soldier scene, the whole world council is there. They've got the 10 ambassadors. Nikolai walks in. Everything's dark. It's all underlit. And Nikolai starts doing his Jedi mind trick. And it's almost beat for beat from the book. Mr. Um, please move a foot to the left. We wouldn't want to get blood on your shirt. Yeah, we got that. Uh, <laughs> which is great. And he delivers it as best as he can. It's pretty intense. Um, it just, something about it didn't land for me. And I think I know what it is. Okay, what is it? Rather than just letting the moment happen, they think their audience is stupid. So they got to put that black and white filter over Nikolai for a second to show, hey guys, he's evil. Yeah, they show Buck's face. His eyes are tracking Nikolai. They put a black and white filter over him. The actor playing Nikolai looks up at Kirk Cameron and makes eye contact with the camera while voiceover from Bruce plays talking about the Antichrist's plan. Right. It has to drill it in and does not trust the audience to put it together. And speaking of the Antichrist, um, the words the rapture, Antichrist, and Jesus are all first name dropped in the last third of the film. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do a big exposition dump, and I think they were trying to balance the conspiracy thriller aspect of it with what Left Behind actually is, mm -hmm. which is rapture fan fiction, and I don't think they succeeded. It's weird. Like, you know how, like, in the book, there is, like, just, it's overt proselytizing almost the entire way through? Yeah. We don't really get, like, much proselytizing till the very end, which kind of helps it a little bit. It felt a little out of theme for it, which... I, I don't know. I think there was probably a conversation about we want to use this as a witnessing tool, so we're going to stick to the story and draw people in, give them a good movie, and then maybe they'll want to know more. Mm -hmm. Would you like to know more? <laughs> Actually, speaking of Starship Troopers, very Starship Troopers CG special effects. Yes. Couple of other things that stuck out to me, uh, kind of as we're wrapping here. The very, very ending, where would normally be the monologue about like the tribulation force would go into the future on the worst years humanity had left. Buck does give a monologue that's similar. And then he goes into the building of like New Hope Village Church, which is kind of like a more traditional looking church building, not like a modern church, has the big heavy doors and everything like that. The doors close and there's some weird, almost ominous music as the camera pans up to the steeples of the church and then like the dissonant ominous chords sort of resolve into kind of a heavenly like major chord and then it fades to black yeah it's a weird way to end it it's not really clear on what they're trying to convey with that ending yeah and the opening was much more compelling because in the opening buck is having like this big almost prophetic monologue about like the future of the world and stuff I don't remember the specifics, but it's I'm, like we were warned we didn't listen. You yeah. Know, real kind of boilerplate, like apocalyptic thriller stuff. Mm -hmm. It's nothing to write home about. 
Also, Carpathia in the UN scene directly mentions the Garden of Eden and the serpent. Like, he has that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're they're really kind of trying to lay it on thick. Yeah, beat, beat on the, this guy's the Antichrist. Yeah, because up until then, he is painted as a sympathetic ally character. Mm-hmm. So they really thought they were hitting a home run with that turn, and then they just just did not stick the landing. And oh. I was very disappointed. Oh, man. Can, the, my favorite part about the whole heel turn thing terribly sad that was really funny because when he does his jedi mind trick he makes them all repeat the words terribly sad over and over and buck is the only one who doesn't do it somebody else like Hayam, i think says it later in a conversation and hattie says it later in a conversation mm-hmm. um and it's very eerie yeah like it's eerie and that's effective but like the actual landing itself if they'd have taken out that one extra beat with the black and white and the vo i think it would have been better okay had more of a turn maybe not even had him get on his knees yeah like stone i mean maybe it would be different but you know we already are guilty of trying to write a better book on these i don't think we need to also try to write a better screenplay right (laughs) okay how do you feel about giving this a rating i'm not really feeling it I mean, do you, I, I was going to say... We do have to watch more of them. Because, like, you know how we do three episodes per book, and then we give a rating. Why don't we do similar like that? We do, like, all three movies, and then, like, an off-the-record for the movie. Maybe? Yeah, we can just do a recap before yeah. we go into the Cage movie. Yeah, yeah, so uh, we'll save a review for now. But also, wait, before we go, I, I want to share a quick little anecdote about... Another one of my favorite bits of this movie wasn't even in the actual movie. Uh, I, what? I, I pull up to your house, and you're standing in the driveway, and uh, I roll down my window and like, Gavin, it's already started. Get in here. I walk in <laughs> to the- I know where this is going. I go walk into the left behind menu, and you have the most funky music set to like B footage of like what's supposed to be like Israel and stuff. And I'm like- Israel under attack. Yeah, Israel under attack. Oh, don't worry, bud. I got a recording of it. Oh, thank you. And that's what we're going to go out on today. All right. So final thoughts, final observations, at least for me. Pastor Billings Mm -hmm. is another celebrity stunt cast. Oh. At least a Christian one. He is played by well-known, I guess we could call him megachurch pastor, Mm -hmm. T.D. Jakes. Ah. Yep. Oh, we we didn't really talk much about the uh, the tape itself. Oh yeah, the tape's in there. Yeah, the tape's in there. You see almost nothing of it. Yeah. You get little bits and pieces here and there. There's not a lot of talk about the tape. They mention it. You see the beginning, and he says, like, if you're watching this, this means that something has happened, and then we see something toward the end. Yeah, and it was like a di- wasn't it not like uh, what the actual tape is like that the, the the VHS one? I mean, it's the same content. Um, okay. At least the same like script. Okay. But it's a different person playing Billings. Okay. Because T.D. Jakes, being a big megachurch pastor, they put him in there. Ah, okay. Yeah. Not only a pastor, but also an author and pretty big deal kind of in the evangelical community. Yeah. So we have two more of these that we're going to do. Don't make me watch the next one. Oh, we're going to watch the next one, which also came with its own soundtrack and also came with its own special brand of special effects. I've seen clips from it and it is pretty fun. Okay, I mean, I you get you to see what? the witnesses do the dragon. You know what? Here. I'm gonna, gonna I'm gonna that. make an I'm gonna make an uplifting prediction. The Tribulation Force film will be better than the Tribulation Force book. Oh well, we're screwed now. <laughs> <laughs> Just totally screwed. But you know what? As we leave, and we're definitely gonna go out on that funky menu music that actually is in the movie too. It's in the movie when Chloe's driving down the street, and it is the end credits music. 
cuts from that weird pan up on the church to this credits music that you're gonna hear. Do you recommend that our listeners watch this movie? If you like this podcast, you want to see more, like, if you're just bored with your friends and you're like, yeah, let's watch a bad movie, instead of reading the books, this is a more efficient way to consume the story and kind of get an idea of what's going on. So you know what? I would recommend the movie a little bit more than the books just because it's only 90 minutes and it's it, it'd be a fun evening with your with your buds. Oh, dude, I'm giving it an enthusiastic yes. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I know. I'm definitely saying absolutely watch it. Like, Gavin's a little more cautious. Like, he's like, eh, maybe under certain circumstances. No, y'all watch this. <laughs> there is some gold in here. I had a good time watching it. Like, I didn't hate it. I didn't have to be drunk or make fun of it to enjoy it. I think I might have actually enjoyed parts of it. Yeah, like that, like I said, like we've said about other bits of media in this, it was frustratingly competent. Yep, some of it until it wasn't. And then when it's not, it's very not. <laughs> but I think that that is going to bring us to the end of this very special bonus episode of I Survived the Rapture Goes to the Movies. Man, we wouldn't be a podcast if we didn't do a bad movie episode, I think. I think right. That's, I think they'd revoke our union cards. <laughs> anyway, thank you guys for hanging out with us. This has been another episode of I Survived the Rapture. I'm Shane Bazell. And I'm Gavin Russell. Uh, and until then, feast your ears on this incredible track. Bye. Okay, that's our show. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Rapture Podcast. I Survived the Rapture is part of the IndieSaurus Podcast Network. For more great shows and to join the conversation, please visit IndieSaurus.com and check out the IndieSaurus Discord. We'll see you there, and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>